Well, for the teaching this morning, everybody knows this is the first Sunday of the new year, and, you know, there have been weight loss ads, you know, the way the year works, the cycle, the holidays, we've had, I don't know, four or six weeks of holiday, holiday eating, so anybody that sells weight loss products, we're making our New Year's resolutions, you know, we're going into the new year, so we're making financial assessments and all these kinds of things. It's easy to minimize the value of some of this, and indeed some of it is not very worthwhile. You know, all of us are so consumed by our own waistline and the thoughts of our appearance and et cetera. These are minor things. But <clears throat> the act of assessing where we're at in life and where we're going, that is a healthy thing. And that's a healthy thing to do any day of the year. If we don't do it any other time of the year, to do it around New Year's is a good thing. It's not a, it's not a small or a minor thing. It can be a very important thing. Kathy and I have become less practiced at this over time, but try to sit down at the end of each year and assess where are we at and where are we going and make plans for the following year. <clears throat> Some kind of plans, you know, you can make with firmness and rigor and some plans you make and you hold on to very lightly, um, just the nature of life. Uh, let me encourage you with, this isn't so much a resolution as something I've been thinking about for myself, and I'll tell you about it and encourage it for you this year. And this isn't anything very specific, but in general, one of my goals for 2004 is to pursue life this year or to pursue signs of life this year. And let me, let me fill this in a little bit, and then we'll look at some scripture related to it. In communicating what I'm talking about, let me mention C.S. Lewis briefly. If you read his biography, it's a short biography called Surprised by Joy. Joy became this key word or this key theme in his life. And here's this Oxford Don, this world intellect. He's writing back about the things that shaped his life. You know what, one of the most shaping influences in, in his entire life was as a little child one day, he took the tin lid off a biscuit tin, or for us a cookie tin. You know the Christmas cookies you get? It'd be like that. He takes the tin, he goes outside, and on this little tin he fashions some dirt, some mud, some sticks, some leaves, some moss. He fashions this little world. And for him, as an adult, looking back, and he was so smitten by this as a kid, he looked back as an adult and he realized that for him, this little tin and its little world showed him something about life, that, that there was within this life that we experience here now this longing for something bigger and better, that there was this knowledge even within the life of the child that we were made for something bigger and better than the world we inhabit and know here. And so for him, this, uh, this sense of joy, he termed it joy, he also termed it northernness. When, as a child, he thought about the Norse mythologies. He and Tolkien shared a lot in common along these lines. He called it this northernness, and it was this longing for something the myths revealed. It was for this better land, or this higher good, or this higher plane of life or living. And so even as a young kid, he was growing up with this sense that we're called to something bigger, something better, a richer qualitative life than we know here and now. And he, he talked about that primarily in terms of longing and of joy. In his paper, The Weight of Glory, I'm going to read a brief thing he wrote here. 
related to this thought. We know there's something bigger and better. He said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust it to them, the sense of a better world, a more beautiful place. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, our good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. I know there's life, bigger life, qualitatively. I long for it, but I realize I live my life here and now. And so in this life here and now, before I get to this bigger, higher plane, I get these signs of life, this scent of the flower I can't find or the echo of that song I can't quite locate. But it's a sign of that further country, that place that's further up and further in this better place. I get hints of it here. I get a little taste or a foretaste, we might say, while I'm here. And it's that thought that I'm going to pursue more this year and that I want to encourage you to pursue too. And by this I mean to pursue life with a capital L. And if we're not always thinking that we're finding life, that foretaste of the great life to come in heaven with Christ forever, at least signs of that life, hints of that life, the echo or the scent. Jesus said in John 10.10, He said that the reason he came to earth, and you can find other texts along the same line, but in John 10.10, he says the reason he came to earth was so that you and I could have life and have it in abundance. Not a little bit, but a lot. Not half a cup full, but a cup pouring over with life. And this doesn't mean just existence. You know, people will live in hell. That is, they will have existence. But they will not live in the qualitative sense Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about mere existence, but real life. Or in John 17, 3, Jesus said that real life is to know, experientially to be in relationship with and know, God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's life, real life. It's what he came to give us, and we get it to the degree, if you will, that we're connected in relationship to him. Last year now, 2003 at some point, Adrian and I were on an outing in downtown Lawrence and we'd had a nice time and we were actually winding down. We'd walked mass up one side and down the other and we're just about to end and we got in front of a new store that I had never seen before and the window (coughs) signs kind of put me off a little bit. It had terms like grace and truth and beauty and I thought this is probably some new age establishment and I wasn't even going to go in. But I looked through the window and I saw these bookshelves and I thought, it can't be all bad. So I went in and we looked around and it was a bookshelf, but it was a bookshelf, a bookstore and more. Lots of good Christian books. The name of the store is called Signs of Life. I liked it right from then. Signs of Life. But besides being a Christian bookstore and selling Christian music, it's also a coffee shop and they have live music and they have jam sessions on, I think it's Thursday nights. Then the second floor is an art gallery, and they have 
artists from around the nation, at least, Christian artists displaying their work. And I loved it because both its title and its content, this signs of life, it's not like Lewis, it's not that the artwork is life itself, but it's the hint of real life. It's the sign of that bigger, better life. And the books, you know, the content of some is the gospel itself, real life, life in Christ. But you still, the rest of the story is the echo, at least, of life. It's the sign of life, of God himself and his goodness to us. And we see that reflected in some of the things the stores contain. And so, if you go in and you drink a great cup of coffee, which they have. Actually, it's P.T.'s coffee, come to think of it. Yeah. Uh, or you enjoy the artwork or whatever. It's not that the coffee is life but certainly it's an enjoyment of the aspect of life that we'll have in full when we get to heaven. And so with that as a backdrop, what I want to talk about specifically from the scriptures now is pursuing life. Pursuing life with a capital L, uh, if you will, looking for signs of life here in our time on the earth before we get to heaven. Jefferson, as you know, in the Declaration of Independence said that we're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Life would be existence, someone shouldn't take your life. And uh, liberty, someone shouldn't unnecessarily constrain you. But the pursuit of happiness, but for humans, the pursuit of happiness is frankly, it's too low a goal. It's certainly too low a goal for those who've been made in the image of God. And for Christians who've been redeemed and made children of God, the pursuit of happiness is not a big enough goal. But I would suggest that the pursuit of life is because God is the author of all life and is in himself, life itself qualitatively, to pursue life is to pursue God, and that should be our pursuit. While life doesn't break up neatly into segments, and I don't mean to segment life here, life is a whole and we should view and live it as a whole, it's helpful at least to describe aspects of life in categories. And let me start by talking about the pursuit of life at the spiritual level, at what is inherently the immaterial level, the spiritual level. Because we're spiritual creatures, we live life from the inside out, as it were. It's what's within a man that either defiles us or makes us holy, the scripture says. We live life from the inside out. We are inherently spiritual. Related to this, I've been in Romans 8, been very encouraged by this passage, and just to set the stage, Romans 6, 7, and 8 talk about our experience on earth, we who are redeemed. And in chapter 7, Paul the great apostle described his tension, his dilemma, his struggle as this redeemed person who is still sinning and he's going around like the dog chasing his tail, wanting to do right but not doing it, knowing not to do evil but doing the evil anyway. And he's describing that dilemma that all Christians face. And he gets to the end of that and enters chapter 8, and he says this, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. We read verse 6 also, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life. In chapter 7, he's talked about these two, the spirit and the flesh. And basically the flesh is that old sinful nature that all of us are born with. It is inherently corrupt and evil. No one has to teach children to hit other children 
or to want something for themselves. They're born with it. Then we grow up with it. Our fleshly nature, no matter how we clean it up, is inherently deficient because it is self-centered. It is not God-centered. It is self-centered. And everything the flesh does is sinful. This is why the most moral and upstanding people who are not Christians, have not trusted Christ, are sinful. And, if you will, in the eyes of a holy God, their righteousness is vile, filthy rags. Because everything the flesh does, in the end, is self-centered and self-serving. So Paul's talked about that in Romans 7. And now he talks about life in Romans 8. And he sets up this, in Romans 8, he talks about it in this way. There's the law of sin and death, and there's the law of, the, of life in the Spirit in Christ Jesus. When you and I are born, all we have is the law of sin and death. That is, we are born sinners. So we sin. And the product of sin is always the same. It is death. James says this. You know, the outcome, we lust. Sin is conceived. Sin is born. And what does it bring? It brings death. Sin is a seed. And when we commit sin, we plant a seed. And when it sprouts up, it grows death. As certainly as an apple grows apple trees, an apple's sin brings death. That's it. You know, uh, if you're an outstanding basketball player and you can jump very high, Ryan, you know this, you see the guys on the court, you jump, you know what happens? No matter how high you jump, what happens? You come right back down. And why is that? Because there's what we call the law of gravity at work. Now, even if we don't say there's a law, the way God has wired the universe, there's a dynamic at work. And the dynamic is that mass, the mass in various bodies is attracted to one another. So that even if I don't say there's a law, if I jump up, I'm always pulled down because there's a force at work. Now we articulate that force, we describe it, we talk about it, and we say it's the law of gravity. But to call it a law doesn't make it happen, it just describes what is inherent and what is true. God says that as sinners separated from him, we are subject to the law of sin and death. We're sinners, we sin, we get death. That describes the dynamic of our life. It's a law. It's more certain than gravity. It will happen. It must happen. Sin brings death. We're sinners, we sin, we get death. But here in Romans 8, he says, guess what? For those who are believers in Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the old law of sin and of death. How does it do that? The law of the life, or excuse me, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you think back to gravity, if you and I jump, we're pulled right back down. Even if we jump high, we're pulled right back down. If you take an eagle, though, for instance, uh, an eagle, when it's full grown, has all of its feathers, it can spread its wings out. And because the laws of aerodynamics in this case we could say, are greater than the laws of gravity, the eagle can defy the law of gravity by the law of aerodynamics. The air passing over its wings lifts it up. It can fly all day. It's not subject anymore to the law of gravity because another law has superseded it. And that's what Paul says is true of you and I as Christians. Anyone who has trusted Christ for salvation, Paul says, is now, in effect, under another dynamic or principle of life. He calls it the law of 
the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And just as an eagle can overcome gravity, Paul says you are now subject to a law in which you don't get sin and death anymore. You get life in Christ Jesus. You get life. You're subject to a new law. Someone who's unsaved does not get the benefit of aerodynamics, so to speak. They don't get the benefit of the law of the life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. They just get death. Just get death. For Christians, though, we have, we're actually under new law. The degree to which we enjoy that, however, varies. And all of you know this. Um, All of us at times and in various ways, we live in Romans 7. And we're calling out with Paul at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will set me free? I'm the lowly worm. I can't get off the earth. Gravity's holding me down. Paul says, well, there is deliverance. There's a new life. And just like the worm can become the butterfly, that's what God has done here. We may jump and be pulled back to earth as a human, but an eagle can fly, one law superseding the other. Um, most of us, I think, unfortunately live in Romans 7. We don't get to Romans 8. We still live under the law of sin and of death. Paul does say there is a way out, and there is a consistent way for you and I to enjoy the benefits of the laws of aerodynamics or the law of the spirit of life. And before you go up, you go down. You know, on a sin-cursed earth devoted to death, you want to live, God says, first you have to die. Let me read you a verse from Matthew 16. If I ask you the question, how do you experience the law of life? What does that look like? How do I get it? I've got wings and the laws of the aerodynamics apply, but I'm still sitting on the ground. How do I get up? Jesus says, this is quoted in each of the four gospels, by the way, which is a little unusual. There are not many elements that are included in every gospel because they take a different vantage point. This verse, this phrase, is in every one of the gospels. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. This is true in salvation, but it's also true as a way of life for Christians. If you hang on to the life you think you know and want, you get death. But if you submit yourself to death, you in fact get life. Now for Paul in Romans, the same chapter we read those first couple of verses from, in verse 13 he says this, If you live according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. This is not hell. This is not loss of salvation. This is the fruit of sin in this life. If you sin, you will die. You will get the fruit of sin. You plant the seed, you get its fruit, death. He says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You see, before you get the benefit of the law of life, you have to put to death, Paul says, the deeds of the flesh. Or in Galatians 5, this is a parallel passage, meaning Paul's dealing with the same subject, In Galatians 5, verses 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, that is, the Spirit of life. You see, for us to get the benefit of this new law, we have to put to death 
the sinful impulses of our fleshly or our old sin nature. If we don't, we continue to live under the law of gravity, under the law of sin and of death. So the secret to flying with the eagle, to experiencing the new law of life, is to put to death the old. Now the question becomes, fine, how do I do that? What does it take to put to death the deeds of the body? I would suggest this, and um, this is my take on this. I mean, the scripture is very blunt and it's very frank, but the truth is for most of us, as we go about trying to do these things, we find ourselves in the circular dynamics of Romans 7, sinning, repenting, confessing, walking right for a while, sinning, confessing. You know, this is the circle many of us find ourselves in routinely. As a young believer, I confess, I read Romans 6, 7, and 8 all the time. And I cried out, wretched man that I am, all the time. And I kept saying, Lord, but how do I do it? Paul says in Romans 6, reckon yourselves dead to sin. And reckon, it's this thought of add it up, do the math. You'll see, this is it. You're dead to sin. And I would say, I don't feel dead. I'm still in Romans 7. So, unfortunately, I just say by experience, I know that this, the death part, frankly and unfortunately, is the norm for many, if not most of us as Christians. And yet there is this ability. There's a law. We've got the wings. We can overcome gravity. But it requires, a, I would say, a concerted effort on our part to derive the benefit. And these are the three things I'm going to suggest that answer the question, how do I put to death the deeds of the flesh so that I can overcome the law of sin and death and experience the law of life? The first thing I would say <clears throat> is that we must know God and his character, and we must know what is true and what is not true. And by this I mean I'm, I'm playing my old song here, you must read your Bible. You must meet with God daily in his word. I don't know of any person that I would consider a joyful, mature Christian whose habit is not to meet with God every day in his word. I don't believe they exist. You can't put to death the deeds of the flesh if you're not in the scriptures. There's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that under number two. <clears throat> but if you want to experience the law of life, you've got to meet with the author of life. And I don't mean this in some dull religious formalism. You may know Christians that read the Bible every day and you'd say, I don't want to be like them. They may be religious, but they may be hypocrites. They may go through a form of religion that actually doesn't derive life. And that's not what I'm talking about. A guy taught years ago and he was talking about some people love stereo equipment. They really get into the, the guts, you know, the I can't even remember the dynamics of stereo. Anyway, whatever our amps and watts and etc. He said, but you know, most of us, we just want to turn it on and we want to hear the music. And we don't have to get excited about the disciplines, the stereo equipment, to be excited about the music, the fruit of what they can give us. The discipline of meeting with God daily, of being in his word and talking to him in prayer, the benefit is life. And it's the renewal of our mind. And I'll talk about this also a little bit more here later. But see, we come into spiritual life with the deck stacked against us. Our mind is polluted. We think things that aren't true. We live life for our own 
satisfaction and according to our own desires. We're, we're coming in against the tide here. So if we don't make it our practice to meet daily with the author of life, we're not going to consistently get life. We're not going to experience it. You must be in the scripture. Not so that you can tell someone else, I practice the discipline of daily quiet time, but so that you can derive personally the benefit of what God has to say to you in his word. This becomes more important as we continue down this short list. You've got to meet with God in his word. That's the first thing. The second thing is you must trust God. You must, this gets down to the issue of faith. Sometimes faith is a word, it's uh, maybe overused, it can be misleading. What does faith mean? It means to trust. It means to trust. If we took a poll in this room right now and I said, how many here trust God and trust his word? Probably all of us would raise our hands. But then I would say at some level we're all lying because I guarantee in every one of our lives there are areas in which we do not trust God. And it goes, it gets played out and demonstrated like this. <clears throat> I'm using an extreme example. Let's say I'm a, a married man. And I say, I believe God's word is true. He, he, he has blessed me with a spouse. And I know that his spouse, for me, this is life and joy and it's great. But I go out and I commit adultery. You know what? I don't really trust God. And I don't really believe what he said is true. Why? Because my actions show that what I said I believed, I really didn't. Why? Because when I go out and I commit adultery, I'm really saying I believe I'll get life and joy from the sin. That's what I'm really saying. Now, we can practice a form of insanity. We can say we hold one thing and believe one thing and practice another, but it is insane. It's not rational. It's not logical. It doesn't add up, and it doesn't make sense. But what we do shows what we believe. You know, James, when he's talking to folks who want to talk about Christian faith, he says, guys, talk is cheap. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Our faith, what we really believe, what we really trust, is displayed by what we do, our actions. So when I say trust in God, I don't mean some passive thing we say, oh, I believe God. Oh, yes, I believe God's word. I've talked to some people, Christians and non-Christians, do you believe the Bible is true? Yes. Do you know what the Bible says? No. Do they believe the Bible? No, they don't. Do they trust God and His Word? No, they don't. But they're paying lip service to it. They're paying lip service to it. So when I say, do you trust God, or that one of the requirements of being able to put to death the deeds of our flesh, it's to trust God. Put yourself in one of the situations in which you feel temptation, whatever it is for you. The dynamic goes something like this. I get a thought in my mind. To do something wrong, sin, or to not do something I know I should, sin. Omission or commission. The thought enters my mind. I roll it over. I think about it. Now, if I sin, I say... I'm going to do it, or I'm not going to do it, whatever it is, because I think there's a payoff. And if we're doing something, some sins do have a payoff, at least short term. Uh, they have a pleasure, let's say. Uh, if I'm an alcoholic, I enjoy the alcohol short term. If I've made food an idol, I enjoy overeating short term. Uh, if pornography is my idol, I enjoy it short term. There's a short term payoff. But what do you get afterwards? See, the fruit that comes afterwards, it's not life, it's death. It's death. 
So there's a short-term payoff, but really what it produces then is, is death. So if we sin, we've trusted that we're going to get life from the sin. That's what we believed, even short-term. If we refuse the temptation, as a Christian, it should be because of this, that we believe God, that sin brings death, and that to obey Him means life. And we've said, you know what, God, I trust you. I believe that to trust you means life and joy and fullness. And so I'm going to say no to that desire I have, that impulse, that temptation. I'm going to say no to it. The reason I can is because I really believe that what God offers me is better. I really believe what God offers me is better. Um, All of us will be challenged the longer we live on earth. We'll always be challenged because God is continuing to conform us to his image. One of the ways, though, you know the areas in life he's working on you is the areas in which you tend to sin are the areas you do not believe him or trust him with. It's just, it's an absolute given. So by trusting him, I mean really trusting him. I don't mean lip service. Because if you trust him, you don't have to sin. Because you don't believe it's worth it. You believe that obeying him will be worth it. It will produce life. It will produce life. Along this same line, the third thing is, this would be true even if we didn't live in the culture in the time we do, but, but our culture is a cesspool getting worse. It's a sewer, and it's getting worse. <clears throat> and because of terrorism and the war we're in, uh, there's a patriotic fervor in which all of us want to believe the best about our country, and, and I don't mean to, to denigrate that in any way. Um, it's a good thing. Paul admonishes us, the scriptures admonish us to be good citizens. But our country is going downhill, and it's going downhill fast. And if you just look around you, this is not hard to see. Uh, turn on your television, go to the movies. You know, one of the things, this has nothing to do with the rest of what I'm saying. If we're going to look at a movie, I go to screenit.com, and I look at the review. It'll tell me how many F words are in the movie. And that's just the way, you know, if I don't want to be assaulted... I check it out and I say, you know what, I'm not going there. I'm a movie theme that I would enjoy, but I'm not going there because I don't want what it has to give me. But the culture we live in, look at the, you don't even have to open the magazines, just look at the magazine covers at the grocery store. The movies, listen to the lyrics on the songs on the radio. The biggest selling CD I learned in the new, newspaper this week was by a rapper I've never heard of, six million CDs, rap music. The second one was Nora Jones, five millions. <clears throat> anyway, all I'm saying in this is our culture is a cesspool. And if you aren't proactively careful about what you're feeding your mind, you're feeding it filth. In other words, the flesh given to sin, if we don't guard our minds, we're just strengthening our old sinful nature because we're feeding it the things it likes. Lust, idolatry, greed, whatever. We're feeding it by what we take in if we're not careful and proactive about guarding our mind, guarding our eyes, what we see, guarding our ears, what we hear. All of that in the end is to guard our heart, our thoughts, our motives. So if we're going to be able to overcome gravity, the law of sin and death, Paul says we must put to death 
the deeds of the flesh. The law of life comes into play when we put to death the old sinful nature. And I'm encouraging you along the lines of these, that we can do it by focusing on the truth of God's word, trusting God, and I mean an active trust that's real, not lip service, and then guarding our minds and our hearts. We want to feed our new nature, truth. We don't want to feed, strengthen our old nature with lies or other things that would strengthen it in its resolve to continue leading our life. So the beginning of enjoying the law of life is death. It's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. A second way of pursuing life, signs of life, uh, this year I might encourage you in is to pursue an attitude of thankfulness. It's very easy. I would say discouragement is one of the things that most easily turns me from life to death. Someone insults you. Someone doesn't appreciate you. you um, your income is shorter than you thought it would be. Uh, you're discouraged. The dishwasher breaks down. Whatever. I mean, there would be a million and one things that could tend to make us feel discouraged. And when we get a little discouraged, our tendency is to go downhill fast. And suddenly, we've gone from the sun is shining and life is good to it's the end of the world and, and everything's black and everything's negative and nothing's good. When you start feeling discouraged about whatever, whatever it is that comes up, just do this. Just start a, a short list between you and God, thanking Him for some of the things He's done for you in your life. And this isn't hard. Any of us, if you live in the United States, you're healthy or semi-healthy, you have a roof and food, we're blessed. And just start going through a short list of the things you can thank God for. Just a short list. Lord, thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my house. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you for my friends. Whatever. There's always going to be a downside to life. On this earth, under sin, there's always going to be a downside. But start thanking God for the ways he's blessed you. And I guarantee almost 100% you'll find your attitude is upended. And you'll be back in the land of the living by focusing on the ways God has blessed you and by giving thanks. It's hard to give yourself to the flesh and its desires. It's hard to remain discouraged very long if you're thanking God for the ways he's blessed you. Very difficult. So change your focus by thanking God for who he is and what he's done for you now and what he's given you in the future. All the things that we have to come, we can thank him right now for where we're going and what's ahead. But <clears throat> determine when you start to feel discouraged or depressed or even tempted, just start thanking God for the things he's already given you and the ways he's already blessed you. The third thing for pursuing life, put to death the deeds of the flesh, cultivate a thankful attitude, is to do some things that you personally find encouraging that you personally find encouraging. If you read the gospel accounts, you'll see that Jesus routinely pulled the disciples aside from the hard work of ministry for times of recreation, time off, if you will, vacations. So when I say this, 
This could be big things or it could be little things. I mean, start with the little at least. We, we may or might not get to some of the big things that we would find encouraging. But little things. Uh, read a good book. Take a walk. I'm talking things that anything that you find personally encouraging. Uh, get your binoculars out and look at the birds. I'm telling you things that I like to do. Can you tell? <clears throat> this does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to cost anything. Turn on the radio to a station you like or listen to some music that you find personally encouraging. See, this is easy. All of us go through cycles where uh, we need something put back in us. Paul talks in Corinthians about we need to edify one another. And to edify means to build one another up to encourage one another. Well, we need to be proactive about doing that for ourselves too. And, and I don't say this in any way that's selfish, selfishly centered. Um, if we're a good steward of ourselves, we recognize we have limited resources. We have limited capacities. And one of the things when we take pictures with our camera, that battery, you know what I know it's doing? It's running low. And what do I have to do? My rechargeables, I take them out, I put them back in the charger and they'll be good to go. And you and I need to do the same thing. None of us can just work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Can't do it. You're the battery. You're draining down. <clears throat> Sometimes a sign of that is resentment, discouragement, a lack of thankfulness because you're running on empty. We need to do things that will be recreative for us or encouraging. And so you can write down a list of some of the things you like to do. In fact, I would argue you should plan, you should schedule some of these things. If you're married, a date with your spouse. Or exercise. For some of us, uh, um, not touting exercise for its own sake, but you know, getting regular exercises is one of the best things you can do for yourself. And I don't mean just physically. When I get on my treadmill in weather like this, or when I get on the trail, you know my mind thinks better when I'm walking because chemically I'm getting endorphins in my mind. I feel better. It's a good thing. You know, if I don't schedule a little exercise, you know what? It won't happen. I won't do it. This is one of the things I have to do. I have to make it a priority. It's one of the things that I can do to make sure I stay encouraged. <clears throat> Go to the zoo, read a book, talk to a friend on the phone, take a vacation. You know, whatever. It can be big or it can be little, but you need to be proactive on this, just like we're proactive on keeping out the negative, you have to be proactive on the end of finding encouragement again, finding ways that you're personally edified and built up again. So to recap, <clears throat> if we're going to enjoy this new law that Christians have, the law of life, we've got to put to death the old sinful nature. Nothing else works if this doesn't. If you don't get this, nothing else happens. There's no more life. We're the eagle without any wings. We put to death the sinful nature. We do that by focusing on the truth of God's word. We trust him, really. We guard our minds. We also develop an attitude of thankfulness. And then we do things that we know are personally encouraging for us. doesn't matter if they're not meaningful to others. If they're meaningful to you, that's what you need to do. Uh, not to be demeaning at all, but let me encourage you uh, in closing to be like the bird dog. Uh, if you've ever seen a bird dog, <clears throat> he knows he's going on a hunting trip. As soon as you let him out of the pickup, they hit the ground and they stick their nose in the air and they're smelling. And see, they have this inherent 
genetic disposition to look for birds. And primarily they do it with their nose. So they'll get out, they'll put their nose up in the air, and then as they start going through the grass, they put it down on the ground, and their nose, that's, that's their eyes, their nose is going everywhere, and it's searching for signs of birds. And I think we need to develop or cultivate this sense that when we get up each morning, we stick our nose in the air, so to speak. And we're attuned to signs of life, signs of life, just like that dog. Genetic disposition to look for the signs of birds, put our nose in the air spiritually and say, Lord, where are the signs of life today? I'm going to be in your word, Lord. Show me life and truth. Lord, encourage me today as I talk to someone else or whatever. Uh, Lord, help me to be thankful today. But I'm going to keep my eyes, my spiritual eyes open for signs of life. I'm going to pursue life. As I pursue life, I'm pursuing God himself. And if I don't, I'm going to live that shallow life subject to the law I come into life with, the law of sin and death. But if with that bird dog, I start my morning, Lord, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for signs of life, of that better kingdom that's coming. I get sense of it here. I get hints of it here. I'm looking for them today, Lord. I'm pursuing life with you today. I think we'd have a pretty good 2004 if we did that. Be a bird dog for life. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck by how great and precious the promises you give us are not just for eternity to come but lord right here and now in the life you give us here on this earth lord we live in a world of sin and death and our sinful nature is predisposed to sin and death and yet in the midst lord you give us the possibility to live under a new law a new principle a new way of life a principle of life itself by your spirit within us the life of Christ himself in us, Lord. Lord, help us to, in a way that honors you and blesses us, Lord, help us to pursue life this year. Help us to be willing to put to death our old sinful nature and its desires. Help us to renew our mind in your word of truth, Lord. Help us to focus ourselves on you and and to trust you even when it doesn't seem like things are going to work out. Lord, help us to develop a thankful attitude and remember and recall all the great ways you've already blessed us and your commitment to bless us in the future. And Lord, help us to develop even a short list of some of the things we need to be doing to stay encouraged. Thanks that you give us so many good things to enjoy. Help us to remember to do some of those so that we stay recreated, so that our batteries are charged. And Lord, you're the God of all life. You're the God of all liberty. And I pray for each one of us this year that we experience you more and more in 2004 as we see your signs of life, those handfuls of purpose you drop for us. Help our eyes to be open to them, Lord. And thanks that you... Give us these hints, these scents, these reminders of that better world to come. And Lord, we'll take them and we'll thank you for them until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.